I actually think that envy is one of the most useful emotions because it's showing you what it is that you actually want for your own life. It's a very natural, clear, honest, driving factor. Singer and songwriter, Madam Gandhi. And a spiritual lens would add that, you know, it's vital that we prioritize meeting our own needs, that we prioritize fulfillment so that we always have something to give, that we can actually be in service of others because we're energizing and nourishing uh, and fulfilling ourselves. I actually kind of light up when I notice myself feeling envious of somebody else or something or a situation or I have a, a thought like, I wish I was like that because it's just the new north. Welcome to Awaken, a podcast from the Rubin Museum of Art that uses art to explore the dynamic path to enlightenment and what it means to wake up. I'm singer and songwriter Ravina Aurora, and I've been learning about the transformative power of art throughout my life. Since time immemorial, art has been used as a portal to better understand ourselves and the world around us. At the Rubin, a museum dedicated to art from the Himalayas, we believe art can inspire us on a path to awakening. And in the series, we're using a specific artwork, the mandala, to explore this journey and the emotions that accompany us on the way. But what is a mandala? A mandala is a guide. People from many cultures and religious traditions around the world use mandalas as maps to navigate their inner lives, including their emotions. Throughout this series, with the guidance of scientists, Buddhist teachers, writers, artists, and activists, we wrestle with five challenging emotions. Anger, pride, attachment, envy, and ignorance. To help us take a new perspective on how emotions can influence our day-to-day -day experiences and what they might be able to teach us if we get curious. In this episode, Envy. 10-year-old Nora Wood is the daughter of Awaken's producer. My understanding of envy, it's jealousy. Let's say you have a sheet of paper for homework and you got a 53 percent out of 100 and your friend sitting next to you got 99 and you may feel envious of her test answers because you wish you had that. Madam Gandhi is an electronic music producer and drummer who weaves her passion for advocacy and gender liberation into her music. I actually think that envy absolutely can have a dark side to it if you use your envy for being hurtful to somebody else because you feel like you wish they had, you know, you had what they had. It's not just that you wish you had what someone else has, but you almost wish they didn't have it. You feel some sort of injustice there. Even though you know you should be happy for them, you simply can't because you're caught up in the story of lack within yourself and how they are the cause for you feeling that lack. Their accomplishment puts sort of a mirror up to your feelings of inadequacy. When we feel whole, we're able to hold space for somebody else's joy. When we feel depleted, it's really hard to hold space for somebody else's joy, let alone their pain. 
Of all the emotions that we're discussing in this series, envy is steeped in self-criticism, and it has a kind of hopelessness to it. It's an emotion that can make you feel so alone in the world. Sharon Salzberg is a Buddhist teacher, co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society, and author of several books, including Real Happiness. Even hearing the word, I think, oh, that's a painful state. <laughs> so I would say envy is a painful state of feeling bereft in some way that somebody has something you don't have and you want it. And while envy certainly has its counterbalance. Sympathetic joy, which is a state very akin to loving kindness or compassion, is described as a state of actually rejoicing in the happiness of another rather than seeing someone's success or good fortune and falling sway to the voice, you know, that envious voice that so often arises within us that says, ooh, you know, I would be happier if you had a little bit less going for you. Like, you don't have to lose everything, but if the light could just dim a bit, I'd feel better. The ability to get lost in the delusion that someone else's success is your failure or feeling that they don't deserve that success is all too common. Buddhist practitioners learn to acknowledge the success of others as worthy of joy and appreciation instead of coveting it. They accept it as an opportunity to make changes in their own lives. Transforming this harmful emotion into positive actions contributes to a greater good and to a stronger sense of community. Another way Buddhists confront feelings of envy is to remember everyone, even the most successful person, is subject to the same suffering as anyone else. Aging, illness, and death afflict us all. This helps dismantle our views that exaggerate attributes in other people. To begin navigating envy, let's start by taking a closer look at what it actually is. Psychologist Tracy Dennis Tawari is a professor of psychology and neuroscience and the director of the Emotions Regulation Lab at Hunter College, City University of New York. So envy is this, I think of it as sort of a, a clawing, this kind of consumeristic, this wanting, it's this sort of emotion. There is something of value that I need, um, that someone has, and that I don't have. <laughs> so let's say... My friend got a, her family moved to a new house that I really liked and I just stayed in my own house, which is perfectly fine. I'm not, I'm not uh, being angry about my house, but it's just then I would feel envious of their new house because I don't have a new one. I think it again comes back to this self appraisal like we saw before, where there's a notion that if I have this thing, it will contribute to my self-worth and my agency and autonomy and ability, you know, my empowerment to do things in the world. And now there's a block such that someone has that thing or they have it and I want it or they have a way of getting it that I haven't figured out how to achieve. And so what envy drives is much more competitive types of behavior rather than collaborative. It removes us from the situation of reality, which is that we live in an interdependent world, and it 
posits a kind of world of us versus them, or it's a dog-eat-dog world and you shouldn't help anybody else because they're not going to help you, and don't let them get ahead of you because you're going to lose out. Sogchen Panlap Rinpoche is a leading Buddhist teacher and one of the foremost scholars and meditation masters in the Nyingma and Kagyu schools of Tibetan Buddhism. Basically, you know, the jealousy, envy, as I always say, they come from this mindset of competitiveness, this sense of competing with each other all the time. I was raised with a very competitive father, father and mother, and they were competitive with each other. Madam Gandhi. You know, they both went to high school together. They were both head boy and head girl. They were both super A-plus stars, you know, in all the realms, in sports, in leadership, in academics. You know, they're attractive, like all the things. They, they had this beautiful romance, and it really was the thing that potentially you can argue tore them apart in the past couple of years when my parents ended up splitting. And I think witnessing that was very devastating, but also very important because I learned this is where competition and where two people who are jealous of each other can really tear each other apart and and in turn end up hurting themselves. And I've definitely been in relationships where the very thing that makes me attracted to my partner is something that I like that they do that I cannot do. And instead of me drawing it as inspiration and working on myself, I find myself potentially being negative or competitive towards that other person. And that's definitely times where I've seen my own toxicity play out and I've had to learn my lesson. Sometimes we even compete with our own selves. My yesterday's self versus tomorrow's self. You know, we are competing. I want to be better than yesterday's self. (laughs) And things like that. But in short, you can see the competitiveness in our culture is very strong. It's very strong, especially in America, as we all can see. It's a natural emotion. It's one that, at least when we listen to it, it lets us understand what we value and then evaluate whether it's a good thing to value. But what it does, in a way, though, is it short-circuits some of our most powerful tools, which are tools of social connectedness and social bonding, because envy is a breaker of, of social connection. So it, it creates a world that, first of all, is not true. We live in a world where we are connected, like it or not, and it's not always pleasant, but it's always true. And someone else's gain is not always our loss. I tend to stay away from social media because it stirs up all sorts of aversive emotions and mind states. Author and Zen priest, Ruth Ozeki. You know, there, there's a, a feeling of being hurt, perhaps, or, or a feeling of being, you know, ignored. But it's not like I want what they have. It seems to me that envy has an acquisitive side to it. And that's what I don't really feel. It doesn't have that kind of acquisitive flavor to it. Maybe there's a bit of FOMO feeling like, You know, oh, I'm not really doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I should be doing more of this or more of that. This is, you know, more kind of neurotic self-judgment rather than envy of somebody else. I think that's it. I turn stuff inwards. My aversive afflictions (laughs) tend to be directed at myself, not directed at others. (laughs) 
we humans especially, are social animals. We evolved to be in groups. We evolved to capitalize on the help of fellow in-group members. And so a lot of what makes us great is our ability to draw on those resources, even to reach out when our own personal resources are weak and bolster ourselves and bootstrap ourselves from others. And so with an emotion like envy that disrupts those social connections and our ability to capitalize on those social bonds, you know, there really are some powerful downsides to that emotion. There's this sense of competition happening not only at a larger scale out there in the world, in our community, but also at homes with each other, between the siblings, between even between the partners. And so that sense of competitiveness is creating lots of jealousy and envy in our mind and breeding that emotion, which end up bringing so much pain and suffering. And therein lies the most challenging part of envy. It can feel really cruel to resent others for their success. And it also causes so much suffering to yourself. It overshadows a lot of our good qualities and separates us from our families, friends, and colleagues. Envy even drives away some of our most beloved family members from us. Envy is one of the toughest emotions because we never as a society, I don't know a single society either that would elevate envy as something to be admired. Envy, it implies a lack of something in you. Very often it has nothing to do with us. And we could actually be a little joyful, which would be really a very liberated state. And it's also very detrimental because it's endless. You know, you can look at somebody walking into the room and think, oh, they, uh, you know, they have a nicer sweater than I do. And and then somebody else comes in and you think, oh, I'm, I'm fine. You know, their sweater is really not nearly as nice as mine, but there's always someone else walking in the room. So it's there's a vulnerability to envy. It implies a scarcity mentality. And so it's just this continual, ceaseless state of comparison and And not a lot of joy about what we do have. Like, maybe we can just enjoy our own sweater, you know, and not not be so consumed with what other people have. It implies the sort of cruelty or ill-wishing to others. Actually, (laughs) envy is actually regarded as part of anger. There's a sense of, uh, how do you say, uh, aggression there that you cannot uh, accept or that you cannot actually appreciate the qualities, positive qualities of others, positive qualities of the world. So that envy is based on a lot of assumptions. Um, Things like happiness is a limited commodity in this world and more someone else has, the less it's going to be for me. Or I, I have nothing, and I will forever. And that person, they have everything, and they will forever. So, of course, there are a lot of problems with that because nothing is forever. It's very unlikely this person has absolutely everything, and it's also very unlikely that I have absolutely nothing. I may have nothing much I'm paying attention to or appreciating, 
And that's what I was really referring to earlier, is that we cease to have any delight in what we have, and everything becomes just lit against the light of someone else's accomplishment or praise or joy, whatever it might be. And and we just feel, as I said before, we feel bereft, like we've got nothing going, you know. And it also is a state where it's this very funny conclusion we draw, which is a little hard to describe, but we feel like the praise, the prize, the accolade was heading right toward me, and you stole it. Envy. It's such a tough emotion, because while it can be so hard... It's a very lonely state. It's a very kind of bitter state. It's not really pleasant to have envy and be lost in it. Yet, its underbelly is one of vulnerability, of pain. But like all of these emotions, when we begin to get inside of them, when we find the bravery to do so, there's so much that can be learned. Emotions have so much to reveal. If we take the stance of, okay, let's stop being so afraid of envy for a second and let's be curious, let's investigate, let's accept it for a minute, right? This is where it's useful, right, to accept it because it, we take a step back from it, we take a breath. We say, okay, if we really investigate what this envy is about, what can we start to learn? We start to learn how to tune into our true north. We learn what is important and we learn to take action not in order to be better than others, but with everyone in mind. We learn to collaborate as we accomplish. Again, Panlap Rinpoche. When we transmute that emotion, when you look at its positive side, then, like you know, like anything, there's pros and cons and positive and negative sides of everything. There's this sense of the wisdom that we can gain from this Energy, you know, the power or the energy of envy has a lot of, how do you say, strife or, or energy has this power to accomplish things, right? Accomplish things and collaborate and to, yes, to bring result, to bring fruit. And so the flip side of this uh, emotion, if we look at its energy, it has this powerful, beautiful, you know, beautiful energy of accomplishing a lot of positive results for oneself and others. I think we start to learn what we care about. I think we start to learn about what we value in ourselves and what we feel we are maybe lacking or weak in. I think envy can actually be a really, really positive and useful emotion if used with respect and wisdom. And so that that understanding of our sense of less, right, when it comes to ourselves, again, that can be an opportunity to say, okay, if I can really look at that face-to-face or head-on, and if I don't want it, if I don't accept that I'm an envious person, if I want that to change, I, I accept that it's there, but I don't accept that I want it to stay that way, then that is where the work is. I had a book on the New York Times bestseller list, uh, and I have no idea how it got there. Um, and it was also really powerful to see other people's reaction, you know. And uh, and it, it wasn't like uh, malevolence, but it was like hurt, you know. Like some people looked actually hurt that uh, that had happened for me, and and it felt so kind of withering, you know, compared to the people 
who were actually really delighted, even if they were authors as well. Um, and I've had many teachers um, who talk about that bundle of qualities, which is usually referred to as uh, the Brahma Viharas or the four boundless states in Buddhism of, of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity or balance of mind. And, and I have many teachers say that of those four, sympathetic joy can be the most difficult, but not impossible. It's like, oh, thank you for showing me what's possible. Thank you for showing me something that I didn't know was accessible to me, but by you doing it and stepping into your power, you showed me that I too can do it. I too can step into my power. How, how exciting, how wonderful. You lit up something in me. Thank you. You can actually shift it into a moment of gratitude. There are many paths, you know, like gratitude is absolutely one. Uh, remembering the truth of change is another. Compassion is one because there's nobody who has it all. And we just get into this sort of imaginary world of like their life is perfect, you know, and, and it's just not so. And remembering the fragility of life and its ever-changing nature and the truth of change. The emotions that can be most challenging to look at can also be the ones that lead to the greatest growth. But we have to do that work. We have to take time to investigate which can be hard to do. Until we can really take that hard look, like if we, who wants to look in and, and look at their, their envious, you know, those envious feelings? It felt like shame. It felt like, wow, this is something that's so easy for others is really challenging for myself. It's just so, I mean, it just feels like then you have to layer shame on top of it, right? Because it's, you know, nothing we're proud about. When I have resistance within my body or towards something, or when I feel like, mm, I want to do this, but I'm not, I like I'm limiting myself, I pay attention to that because on the other side of fear is where the bliss lives, is where the, the, the happiness lives, and where the love lives. So compassion is a doorway. Mindfulness is certainly a doorway because Feeling something is one thing, and investing in it and taking it to heart and nurturing it is quite a different thing. One of my uh, beliefs, one of my maxims is we feel what we feel. And you have to allow every feeling the dignity of its own existence. You can't just denounce you know, your fear and your envy and all of that. It's there, and it's conditioned, it's habituated and it will arise, but what we then do with it is, is the entire question. So rather than blaming yourself and feeling like a failure and hating yourself and feeling ashamed, you don't need to get into all of that, but recognize what you're feeling. And as I said earlier, it's a painful feeling. Rather than calling it bad or wrong or terrible or miserable, it's like so painful to get lost in it that we, we develop a different relationship to it. And even, you know, remind ourselves of what we actually do know. Like, would I be happy if this person only suffered and I could watch them, like, be more and more and more miserable? And you think, well, maybe, but probably not, you know? Uh, because that's really not in our, our makeup, you know, generally speaking. And so we can recognize the emotion without being down on ourselves about it, and also reminding ourselves, I don't really want to 
get lost there. You know that I've been there. I think I'll let go and move on. Like all of these emotions we are discussing, and as the mandala illustrates, it's not about rejecting the feeling. It's about facing it head on. In the Rubin Museum's interactive installation, the Mandala Lab, we're invited to play, experiment, and learn to harness the power of difficult emotions and transform them into wisdom. Picture a giant golden orb, pulsating like a lighthouse, beckoning you to breathe in and breathe out. You will find such an orb set into the wall in the Mandala Lab and cushions on the floor just below, inviting you to sit. Wherever you are now, take a seat if you can and take three very slow breaths along with me and the glowing sculpture. Inhale. And exhale. Inhale. And exhale. Inhale. And exhale. Good. Maybe you noticed something has changed. When we simply breathe together in unison, we actually connect in a subliminal way as one body. Scientists call it entrainment. Mothers call it bonding. Musicians call it music. Whatever you call it, envy turns to connection and a sense of collective accomplishment arises. It's not a question of whether we feel envy, but whether we're kind of governed by it in making choices and how we relate to others and, and so on. So if, it, if it's that much infusing us or it's that overwhelming to us, so that it's really guiding us in some way, then, of course, then we, we don't feel we live in an interconnected universe. We feel someone else's accomplishment just takes something away from us, and we're on our own, and, and we get more and more and more alone. You want to shine? Please go and shine. Just because I'm shining doesn't mean you can't also shine. In fact, you must shine. The world needs you to shine. And the hardest thing for me in assessing that state is that it's so untrue, you know, it's like we can't make the world over into this endless competition as much as we try because it's disaster. The truth is that we're interdependent and we're counting on others and others are counting on us and that's how the world actually looks. And so if you want to be the singular success in the universe, First of all, it sounds tiring, but it's also, uh, it's never like that. 
So I think it's, again, it takes courage to look at envy, to listen to it as information, to see where we feel the lack. And then there could be other ways that we could start to build ourselves up without being grasping towards what someone else has. The desire to want what someone else has is so primal. A baby will wail if another baby has something they want. And when we're trying to better understand ourselves and who we are in the world, we invariably compare ourselves to others. Thankfully, it's something we can grow out of to see the value in our differences. I would say when I was younger, and certainly uh, a lot younger, you know, when I was a child and growing up, and it was such a strong force in my mind. And it was true also, like, my family didn't look like other people's families. It didn't look like the way I thought a family should look. But I projected, like, utter perfection on everyone else. Like, they've got no problems whatsoever, you know. And, of course, that wasn't true either. And, and I would say that it was really compassion and, and some insight into the fact that everyone really has the struggles of one kind or another that let me let go of that. It was not that I had nothing. I had no resource. I didn't have a kind of conventional family, but I also ended up in India at the age of 18 learning how to meditate and, you know, a lot, a lot to be grateful for at the same time. I think it is no coincidence that across religious traditions, whether it's like in the Ten Commandments or in religious teachings in Buddhism or Hinduism, there's cultural practices around envy. We know it's a really hot-button, important emotion. So from a double-edged sword perspective, all the more reason to pay attention and to try to work with it. It's not so much we move away from envy, we move away from acting on envy. Because I'm so accustomed to people blaming themselves for what they're feeling and feeling ashamed in a way that we can't control. We just can't. You can't successfully say, well, I've thought about it really carefully. I'm never going to be afraid again. Or, you know, as we say, when conditions come together for something to arise, it will arise. We can definitely affect the conditions. You know, like maybe we realize that oh, when I don't sleep well at night, I get really subject to intense waves of painful feelings that confuse me about where happiness really lies. And so we can work to affect those conditions, but we can't absolutely control them to insist I will never be envious again, you know? So just to avoid that, I'll reframe the question. And, and we don't want it to govern our lives because it's a very lonely picture it paints and, and a very alienated one. And it doesn't have to be that way. And so being able to see the emotion quickly, find that balance place, which is also equanimity, where you're not like hurtling into it, just overcome by it. And you're also not pushing against it and hating yourself for feeling it. So in that place, in that particular relationship, which is also mindfulness, it's one way of defining mindfulness, there's some space, there's spaciousness. And in that space, we may feel different options arise. We may find creativity arise. Like maybe we understand that my success also depends on this person doing well. And so the more we look, the more we see the truth of interdependence and the more 
we don't want to be governed by a state like envy, which is in defiance of that. We know that abundance is available to everybody. You do not need to be jealous of me. I do not need to be jealous of you. We need to step into our own power and everybody needs to shine. That's the real truth. Thank you for listening to season two of Awaken, a podcast from the Rubin Museum that explores the dynamic path to enlightenment and what it means to wake up. I'm singer and songwriter Ravina Aurora. You just heard singer, songwriter, and activist Madam Gandhi, Buddhist teacher and academic Zogchen Panlap Rinpoche, psychologist and neuroscientist Tracy Dennis Tawari, author and Zen priest Ruth Ozeki, author and teacher Sharon Salzberg, and student Nora Wood. Awaken is produced by the Rubin Museum of Art in collaboration with Sound Made Public. Music produced by Alexis Cuadrado and Hannes Brown, with some additional tracks from Blue Dot Sessions. Awaken Season 2 is part of the Rubin Museum's Mandala Lab, a multi-year initiative generously supported by 28 donors and sponsors. You can continue the conversation by following us on Instagram at at Rubin Museum. And if you're enjoying this podcast, leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends about the conversation you just heard. This is episode four of a seven-part series inspired by the Mandala Lab at the Rubin Museum, an immersive space for social, emotional, and ethical learning. Come explore the lab in New York City or in one of the installations that is traveling the world. Visit rubinmuseum.org to learn more about the museum and about the art, cultures, and ideas of Himalayan regions. We look forward to seeing you.